morning and welcome to this edition of Morning with Marit. Obviously, I'm not Marit Peters, but it's a privilege to be with you this morning. My name is Lee Loftus. I'm the Chief Legislative Officer here at IIAT. And this session is entitled Legislative Update, uh, Your Packet Work. I'm really pleased today that my friend Charles Symington is with us. Charles is the Senior Vice President of External Industry and Government Affairs for the Independent Insurance Agents and Brokers of America known as the Big Eye. He began with IIABA in 2004 after working on the powerful House Financial Services Committee. And Charles, Charles knows his way around Washington. He's regularly voted one of the top lobbyists in DC. Charles directs the day-to-day -day activities of the Big Eye legislative, political, communications divisions and advises the president and CEO on oversight and administration of our association. Charles graduated from the University of Virginia with a degree in history and received his law degree from Emory University. Outside his role at IIABA, Charles serves on the National Down Syndrome Society, and he and his wife, Kathy, Kathy reside in Alexandria, Virginia, with their three kids. Charles, thank you, my friend, for being here today. Thank you for having me, Lee. It's a pleasure. Uh, let's get started uh, talking about an eventful uh, week and uh, the, like the last 10 days, the election in Virginia and New Jersey, as well as the uh, passage of the infrastructure bill. Yeah, and I, I also, of course, want to wish everybody a happy Veterans Day. I want to thank those veterans for their service to our country to protect our freedom. So, so thanks to all of you. Um, yeah, let's dive right in, you know, with the, uh, the passage of that infrastructure bill, uh, you know, last week um, passed with the support of uh, 13 uh, House Republicans, which was a little bit surprising. I think, uh, you know, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is kind of wondering why those 13 Republican members kind of broke ranks uh, and, uh, and voted for that infrastructure bill. But when you look at those 13 members, it's, you know, it's, it's largely a hodgepodge of uh, some retiring members who, of course, then aren't really accountable to the voters in their districts and uh, some members from some northeastern states such as uh, you know New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, where what uh, infrastructure is included in the bill could be important to, to their districts. Um, and then when you when you you know hear the uh, the reasoning of some of these members, um, you know they, they would argue that well you know the bill passed in the Senate uh, and it did garner uh, I think it was 19. Uh, Republican senators uh, supporting it. And so they felt like they weren't necessarily out of line with where the Republican Party uh, was and is. Now, I would argue that the problem with that is that it, when it was taken up in the Senate, it was on its own, right? It was just the infrastructure bill. But now, the way it's been kind of attached at the hip with the uh, Build Back Better legislation uh, by the president and Democrat leadership, you know, that social spending bill, and the two have been kind of moving in tandem. Uh, I'd argue it's a different scenario. And, you know, by passing now infrastructure and by, you know, these Republicans in the House going along with uh, most Democrats, you had the squad, you know, the, the AOC led squad vote uh, against it was six Democrats voting against. So uh, if all Republicans had kind of stood firm and voted against it, the Democrats would not have been able to pass it. So, again, by breaking ranks, these 13 House Republicans now they've really kind of opened the door to the president uh, and Democrat leadership uh, potentially moving forward with Build Back Better. And 
I think that the you know overwhelming majority of Republicans would you know would argue, look, the small amount of good that you know could have come out of this infrastructure bill doesn't even come close to making up for what the you know the damage that, that the country could see uh, if Build Back Better is uh, passed into law. Yeah, Charles, and and it seems like to me that as you said, it's more political than than the reality. They did pass it, uh, the infrastructure bill, uh, in a bipartisan manner, and all that. Now, the question I have is, it seems like what what I've heard is there is a distinct attempt, both by the Republicans and the Democrats, to separate the two because they weren't getting anywhere with the squads pressuring them to vote for both at the same time, et cetera, et cetera. Is that still kind of the feeling up there? Or is it a, a more uneasy feeling now that, that the infrastructure bill passed? Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, they, they, you know, obviously they're, they're not together. They've been broken apart. Um, you know, they were kind of weighing each other down there uh, up until this point, right? Because you had the moderates, the, the you know, handful, maybe 10 um, House moderates, uh, the Democrat Party, you know, they really wanted this infrastructure bill. But you had the Progressive Caucus, about 80 strong, you know, they really wanted Build Back Better. And so you kind of had this standoff where, you know, the, the progressives were holding the infrastructure bill hostage and the moderates were holding Build Back Better hostage. And now that the infrastructure bill has broken loose, and by the way, the president is now scheduled to sign it, I believe, next Monday. So now that's broken loose. Um, you know, you got an agreement by some of these House Democrat moderates that, who have said, OK, the progressives have played ball with us. Uh, they sent a letter to go on the record saying that um, as long as the CBO score and this is the Congressional Budget Office score, as long as the bill is scored at what the president has kind of you know, sold it as about one point seven five trillion dollars. And that's with a T, not a B. That if the, if the numbers are, are largely aligned then they'll vote for it. Uh, so now we're just waiting on the CBO score. Uh, it sounds like it's gonna come out in kind of dribs and drabs. It's not gonna all come out at once, but the House could take it up as soon as next week. I don't know if uh, I'd bet on that the way it's been delayed previously, uh, but you know they could potentially take it up before Thanksgiving and then all the action's gonna move back into the Senate uh, of course, they won't be taking it up until December. It'll be after the Thanksgiving recess uh, at the earliest, early December. And then you, you know, you, the ball's back in the court of uh, you know Kirsten Cinema from Arizona and Joe Manchin from West Virginia. Uh, of course, they've been really slowing this train down, and they're going to get another bite at the apple because um, you know Democrats have added some elements to Build Back Better in the House. Um, for example, Family Medical Leave Act, uh, you know, provisions that Senator Manchin has said that he opposes. So it's good. It's a little different than what um, the senators have uh, got on the record saying they could support. So we're still a long way uh, from the finish line. But obviously, if Democrats get this out of the House, it's a big win for them. Moves over to Senate. And then uh, and then you duke it out in the Senate and see if you can uh, reach agreement between the, you know, the Bernie Sanders type progressives and and obviously Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema who are really kind of holding the line uh, on this bill. Yeah, and, and Charles, it seems like to me that the closer we get, if we got past the holidays without any any uh, uh, action by either or both uh, houses, then the closer you get to primary days and stuff like that, there's probably going to be less less 
appetite to take a tough vote or, or whatever. Is that a, a fair assessment? I think that's exactly right, Lee. You know, we've seen it. You see it in the state legislative uh, level. We've seen it, you know, kind of seen this movie before at the federal level. I mean, you only have so much time to legislate, right? And as the election uh, approaches, uh, you know, Democrats are going to get really nervous. Uh, you typically would, and then you see the results that, you know, we saw in, in Virginia, New Jersey, and in other states uh, last Tuesday. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that, but that certainly uh, puts a little more of the fear of God in them. And so they're going to be even uh, more reluctant to kind of walk the plank on difficult votes as the election, uh, the midterm elections near. And of course, we're only a year away now. Yeah. And you're a, a, a native of Virginia and, and a resident there. And I'll tell me about how it was uh, uh, last week uh, with the election there. Yeah. So, um, you know, you kind of saw this building, right? When you looked at some of the polling, at least in Virginia, um, you know, Glenn Youngkin was he was closing the gap pretty consistently over the course of uh, the last month or two. Um, as a Virginian, uh, I was happy to vote for him, even gave a little bit of the Simonson piggy bank <laughs> to support him as well. And you can just tell, you know, you know, looking at yard signs. Right. You know, you being a political, it's always a pretty good indicator. Uh, and I live in northern Virginia, uh, which, you know, is, is typically pretty blue. And you saw a lot of Youngkin signs and people were willing to talk about their support for him. So, again, you saw this this support for him building slowly. Uh, but New Jersey was a bigger surprise. Right. That that only closed late. And so when you really look at the numbers and you look at, um, you know, how much President Biden uh, won Virginia by in the presidential election, he won Virginia by 10 points. Uh, and then, um, you know, McAuliffe, the Democrat candidate, uh, you know, he lost it by by two. So that's that's a 12 point swing. Pretty, pretty big. And then when you look at New Jersey's numbers, President Biden um, he won New Jersey by 16 points. And the um, incumbent governor uh, in New Jersey, Phil Murphy, Democrat, he only won by three. So that's a 13 point swing. So, again, uh, just you can tell the, you know, the tenor of the of the voter. And, look, and also looking at the presidential approval ratings right now, I and mean, President Biden is mired in the low 40s. I've even seen high 30s. Uh, and so that was really a drag, uh, you know, on the, the, the governor's races and the state legislative races, for that matter, uh, in, in, in both states. And so if you're looking forward now uh, to the midterm election, if you're a, a Democrat House member and you're sitting in a D plus 10 or less district, uh, you know, you're you're fearful. Right. I mean, it's it, your district might be in play. And so uh, there are a lot of Democrat districts that are D plus tens or less. And so that gives Republicans in the House uh, a, a real opportunity to go on offense. And I, and I think this probably the smart money right now would be on uh, Republicans regaining control uh, of the House a year from now. I think the question would be, how big is the margin? Will it be a workable manageable, governable you know, majority? Would it be tighter? Of course, again, with the caveat, we're a year away, but you know, we're going to try to play prognosticators here. So I would say the smart money would be Republicans pick up the House. But uh, even though, of course, the environment is just as good for these Senate races as it is for the House, it's a little bit of a different ballgame in the Senate. And that's purely because of the, the seats that are up in the Senate. Of course, every House seats up each election, but in the Senate, it's only a third of the seats. And when you look at the third of the Senate seats that are up next year, there's just limited opportunity for Republicans to go on offense. Primarily, they're, they're going on offense in, in four states, uh, Arizona, Nevada 
uh, New Hampshire, uh, and Georgia. So those are the four. And they got to play defense in a couple of states too. Uh, Pennsylvania, which is now an open seat, and then Wisconsin, which may or may not be an open seat. Um, and then uh, and not so uh, good news for Republicans. Just a couple of days ago, their top uh, recruit in New Hampshire, which again is one of their top pickup opportunities, the current Republican governor, Chris Sununu, declined to run for the Senate, which it was somewhat of a surprise. So they're going to have to kind of go back to the drawing board and recruit another credible candidate up there. And so because of those limited opportunities, I think the Senate is largely a pick 'em. Uh, it's to be very competitive. It could go either way. Uh, again, the wind will be at Republicans' backs, but there, because of the, you know, the, the chess pieces on the board, there just aren't that many of them. Uh, I think it's going to be a really close election in the Senate, and we, you know, it really could come down to the wire to see who controls the Senate, uh, you know, after November of 2022. That's great. Before we leave the Build Back Better plan, is there anything still in there, or what are some of the things in there that agents uh, should be concerned with, and obviously things that y'all are and have been working on to get uh, get protection from? Yeah, thank you, Lynn. We spent, you know, of course, because that's the big enchilada, right, in uh, in D.C., and it had such broad impact and will have such broad impact on the economy. We've really focused our advocacy efforts on that bill, and, and it's been met with, with some success. I mean, it, we, you know, when you all think about, and I, I know many of our viewers saw the press reports on some of these huge tax increases that were included in the original versions of Build Back Better, you know, we were very successful working with other business groups, other industry groups as well, uh, you know, in, in the insurance industry to uh, to eliminate some of these provisions. So, for example, um, you know, they were considering changes uh, to the 20 percent small business deduction that so many of our pastors rely on. They were going to institute uh, in income thresholds where they were going to phase out this 20 percent small business deduction above certain income thresholds. We were able to knock that out. And so your 20 percent small business deduction is intact and is going to operate as is. And then I'm sure you all also heard about these, you know, huge tax uh, rate increases, whether it was on the corporate side, going from 21 percent to could it be as high as 28 or 26 and a half. Uh, you know, we have about a third of our members that are organized as C-Corps. We knocked that out. Um, and then on the pass through side, you know, they were going to increase that top marginal rate as well from 37 to 39.6. We knocked that out. Uh, and then also there were uh, major changes that were afoot, increasing the capital gains tax rate. Uh, that was taken out of the bill. Uh, stepped up basis. Um, there were going to be changes there. Uh, we knocked that out. And then also state and gift tax changes. So, you know, those three in particular, as our members are looking to perpetuate their businesses and, you know, leave their assets to their heirs, um, it was really, really important that we, uh, that we took those out of the bill. And, and we were very successful there now. Uh, I'm sure you all also read about there was a new tax reporting uh, regime that was going to be put into place. This is where the community bankers were in an uproar, and we were working with them on this. And, Lee, you and I talked about it. Uh, yeah, you reached out to me because I know that your compatriots and the, the Texas bankers were really worried about it. Uh, it was going to require the sharing of uh, specific account information with the feds, with the IRS, uh, if, if, if money inflows and outflows of a de minimis level of $10,000 over the course of a year had occurred. I mean, you would have had a lot of information going to the IRS, so that caused a lot of concern uh, in the financial services industry. We work closely with the banking and credit union groups uh, to knock that out, and we knocked that out. So, again, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back too much, but 
you know, a lot of, uh, you know, kind of shoe leather lobbying. We launched grassroots on a targeted basis, uh, drafted a lot of letters and, and again, worked with other business groups to, to improve the bill. Now, it's not all peaches and cream, right? That, I mean, this is a huge price tag. They got to raise the money somehow. And so uh, there is the expansion of this net investment income tax, that 3.8 percent uh, Medicare tax that now is going to uh, also apply uh, to you know, ordinary business income. And so some of our members are probably going to be hit by that. So, you know, we're going to keep an eye on the implementation of, of that provision. Um, the, right now, the thresholds are at 400,000 uh, for individuals uh, and 500,000 if they're uh, filing jointly. Uh, so again, that'll have an impact. There's also um, a surtax for uh, high income individuals. Don't expect this to hit many of our folks. Um, it's a 5% surtax uh, for AGI exceeding, uh, I think it's 10 million. And, and then there's an 8% surtax on AGI exceeding 25 million. Uh, so again, high thresholds, but it's important to note that um, for, uh, for trusts, if um, your businesses are, have ownership held in trusts, those thresholds are much lower and it's 200,000 for the 5% surtax and it's 500,000 for the uh, 8% surtax. So really important if you're, uh, if you get a, if you have assets organized in trust, take another look at that. And then, you know, hitting some of the big corporations, there's a, the 15% uh, corporate minimum tax on, on those large corporations. It's over a billion. So it's certainly not going to impact our members, might impact some of our markets. And then, a 1% surtax uh, surcharge on corporate buybacks. I know a lot of the larger insurance companies uh, were worried about that. So those were those are kind of the wins and the losses on the on the pay for tax revenue side. But we also had some wins on um, kind of non-insurance provisions. There was a, a, a kind of a, a slipped in provision that would have given the Department of Labor more authority over the workers' compensation system and it would have allowed them to monitor state workers' compensation programs. That caused us a lot of concern. Uh, working with the carrier trades, we knocked that out. Uh, many of you will probably recall there was also a, a new mandate on uh, smaller employers that have to sign up their employees for uh, IRAs, uh, knocked that out. And then in some good news, there's some additional funding for the National Flood Insurance Program. I know we're going to talk about that in a little bit, uh, the overall state of the program and, and risk rating 2.0. But um, they're, uh, they're going to forgive the, the debt, and that's about $20.5 billion. And then there's additional funding for mapping and also additional funding. It's, it's about $600 million for a pilot project for uh, means testing uh, for some of the premiums. So at least there's some, uh, you know, slight positive there on the NFIP. Uh, Going to be a long way to go, right? We're not at the finish line, as I mentioned, uh, with the House potentially passing this in the next uh, two or three weeks and then the Senate to follow suit. So uh, knock on wood, we're not going to count our chickens just yet, but uh, so far we have uh, improved the bill uh, and made it less onerous uh, for our membership and the clients. Well, you say you won't pat yourself on the back, but we'll pat you on the back because I know how hard you and your team have worked on that, Charles, and, and uh, it's very positive to hear the, the improvements that we've made. I think we all still agree that it's it's a huge financial burden on the country, but at least y'all have done, done your job. Now, let's move on to another uh, subject that you just mentioned, flood insurance and all, which is about to expire, you know, and, you know, give me your feel on what's going to happen. And then let's talk about the, the risk rating 2.0, cause we've had some uh, conversation with some of our members here in Texas that it's, it's causing some problems. So 
fill us in on where yeah, we all thank you, you bet. And thank you for raising that with us. You know, we always appreciate the communication, obviously with our members, but uh, our state association staff, their members also. And so we really appreciate you. When things like this bubble up, we need to hear about it. And so, of course, you reached out and, and passed some of that along to us. But so first, in terms of the expiration <laughs> of the program, you know, it's tied to federal government funding. You know, it's funny, as you, as, you know, all the press has been on infrastructure and build back better. There's been less talk about uh, you know, the federal government potentially shutting down come December 3. So, uh, you know, Democrats are also going to have to fund the federal government past, past that date. Uh, the NFIP will be part of that. Um, you know, so we're seeking a clean extension of the NFIP um, as part of the federal funding legislation. I, I, I think we'll get that done. Again, there's a lot of oxygen being sucked up on these other bills. And that's the other, you know, uh, downside of, of, you know, now Build Back Better being delayed is that, uh, it, it, it makes it you know, more likely that uh, we may see a you know kind of an expiration of the NFIP and a shutdown of the federal government. But uh, again, if, I probably bet that we, we don't see that, but the chances are increasing. And then the other thing that hasn't been talked about a lot, and, and, and this is probably going to come to ahead in December, maybe January, is the need to increase the debt limit. Uh, you know, Republicans uh, you know worked with Democrats uh, most recently a couple of months ago to get that done, and then Mitch McConnell uh, really kind of took it on the chin. Uh, from our rank and file and, and, and kind of from the base, I think Democrats are going to have to do it this time on their own. And so that's another kind of fiscal cliff that's, uh, you know, we're going to see in December, January. So really important for Democrats to do that. Uh, so, so the NFIP, um, again, hopefully extended, probably be for a year, um, but it, it'll be tied to federal government funding. And then risk rating 2.0 on the regulatory front, uh, another topic we have spent an inordinate amount of time on, again, as you noted, really important to our members and many of their clients. It's, you know, it's already being implemented. It's a staggered implementation. And so for, for new policies um, that, you know, were effective um, on October 1st or later, uh, you know, this new rating methodology, which rates these um, properties on more of an individual basis, right? FEMA would uh, characterize it as a modernization of uh, rating, uh, you know, on flood insurance, um, using uh, more com computer modeling um, and, and doing it individualized. Uh, it's already gone into effect, as, as many of our members know, on new, new policies. On um, existing policies, right now we're in a, in a phase where uh, you can either go with the traditional rating or you can use risk rating 2.0, uh, whichever is cheaper. But come the spring of next year, uh, April 1 and past, it's going to be mandatory uh, you know, for um, all policies. And so we're starting to hear from some of our members that are seeing some interesting rating on properties, you know, whenever you do something, just take a step back, whenever you make major changes like this, right, you're going to have some winners and you're going to have some losers. And so, you know, there'll be some policyholders that see uh, decreases, some, you know, largely stay the same with their premiums and, and there'll be some that see the increases. And, you know, of course, we're going to hear more from those that see the increases. Uh, and, and so we're going to stay in very close contact with FEMA as they implement this. There has been concern uh, you know, from some in the in the industry on the implementation, we're one, we're you know we're one of those groups. Um, but you know, it's, it's the cow's kind of out of the barn on this now, uh, and, and it's it's going to be implemented. So we're gonna you know going to have to work closely with with the regulators and others in the industry to make sure it's done as effectively and as efficiently as possible. And again, we want to hear from from our members. If you're in, you know experiencing problems, uh, you have questions, please reach out to Lee. Please reach out to you know us and our federal team. Uh, and we'll keep passing along developments as they occur. 
Well, and Charles, you know, those of us down here, it's it's a little tough to to argue against an improved rating system that makes the the whole program somewhat, you know, financially solvent when we're sitting there looking at a 24 to 26 billion dollar deficit. So it, it was kind of one of those tough, tough arguments and all. But thank you for staying on top of that and and uh, and and taking our calls when we have agents uh, expressing their concerns and all that. So, um, but Lee, Lee, can I mention one other, one other thing just that came to sure. mind? And so <clears throat> as you look at the, uh, you know, the yearly increases, right now there's an 18% cap that's in place, right, on yearly uh, premium increases. So that's still going to be in effect going forward. Um, and, uh, it, you know, there may be some talk, right, depending on, on some of these increases and how, how large they are and, and kind of the complaints that are coming from, uh, you know, constituents and members of Congress, they always listen to the voters. And so, you know, as we think about ways to kind of uh, mollify and alleviate some of these increases, you know, you, you may explore, um, you know, reducing that cap, you know, from 18 to a nine or, or something along those lines, the, the yearly cap. Uh, again, if, if more policyholders see these large increases than, than originally um, expected or, I mentioned the means testing kind of pilot and the additional funding for that that's in Build Back Better. There could be some more discussion from policymakers here come next year on, on additional uh, means testing uh, of, of flood insurance premium. So, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, you know your viewers know that, um, you know, we'll explore all avenues um, and work with um, policymakers on ways to, if we really see this thing going off the rails, uh, to try to uh, lessen the harm to our policyholders and to, of course, to our membership that work with. That sounds great. Um, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you you talked to me uh, earlier about some changes coming for members that sell health insurance and uh, as it deals with disclosure requirements and all. Talk to us about what agents that that are in that that realm or have de departments within that what they're what they're seeing and and what they're going to have to be doing, Charles. Sure thing. Yeah, thanks, Lee. And, th and this is a time sensitive issue, and this all comes from uh, the end of 2020, uh, where the uh, the omnibus government funding bill that passed then that was signed by uh, President Trump, uh, it did include some new uh, you know health agent compensation disclosure requirements. And that's for both group health plans and also individual market plans. Uh, and the requirements take effect starting on December 27th of this year. So, you know, next and next month. So we're really coming upon us. And so if you're in these markets, this is something you need to be really focused on. Uh, now, the group health plan requirement uh, applies directly uh, to insurance producers and consultants. And that's administered by uh, the Department of Labor. And we've been working uh, with the DOL trying to push them to issue more detailed guidance on what needs to be included in these disclosures. They haven't uh, released that yet. Uh, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't change the need for us all to comply with it if you're in that market. And so we're trying to get more uh, details from them. Uh, we'll stay on them. But regardless, this, this deadline's coming. And then uh, for the individual market uh, requirements, um, that's uh, Health and Human Services, that's HHS, and in September, uh, they did put out a separate proposed rule uh, regarding those disclosure requir requirements. Now, these mandates, unlike the group, these apply to health insurance issuers and the carriers, um, so they're largely going to take care of those. Uh, and, and actually, speaking of timely, I would encourage 
those that are interested uh, in, in these topics to read today's news and views. Now, news and views is our, our e-newsletter that goes out every Thursday afternoon. It covers a whole bunch of topics, but from a government affairs perspective, this is our main vehicle to uh, relate to you what's happening in D.C. and how it may impact your businesses. And we are typically uh, you know, drafting and authoring a couple of articles a week. Uh, again, a whole bevy of uh, plethora of topics. But this week, uh, we have an article uh, with a link to a detailed uh, summary uh, of what we put together on what you should consider putting in your disclosure. Uh, and so we've worked with our uh, government affairs team, worked with uh, Wes Bissett, who I know many of you know well, our outside senior counsel for government affairs and our office of general counsel. So it's been a kind of a team effort. But uh, I'd encourage you to read News and Views uh, this week and every Thursday uh, afternoon for that matter. Again, it's, it's our way to pass things along to you. And look, I know in this day and age, right, we're all just bombarded, right, with emails and on social media and texts. And, uh, you know, I get it. I'm, 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 I'm with you. But just open it up. Just skim the articles. It, it'll take you 30 seconds and then you can close her down. But if something kind of, you know, piques your curiosity, uh, then read it. Because, again, this this is the way that we can make sure you know what's happening in D.C. Well, and Charles, I know that personally uh, I will read those, review them and all, and then I file them electronically. And it's amazing how many times I'll have a question or something come up and it'll create my deal, and I'll go back and look back uh, and and freshen up on that article. So it's it's great information that you provide. And uh, it's uh, it's very timely, timely and all. And Speaking of timely, obviously, uh, InsurePAC is our federal PAC, and uh, Nathan Rydell and your team does a great job of, of uh, the advocacy side of things and all. And, and talk to me about what, how important that is for your efforts and, and all there in D.C. Thank you, Lee. Yeah, appreciate the softball, but it's absolutely critical. I mean, it's hard for me. Uh, to stress enough, you know, how important that tool is for us to represent, uh, you know, our agents in D.C. You know, it, it, uh, on, a, on a per cycle basis, it disperses about $2.4 million a year. So it's real money. It's one of the biggest, uh, largest small business packs uh, in D.C. And look, you know, as, as insurance agents, you all know relationships, right, are, are critical with customers. It's the same thing with members of Congress. Uh, you know, it's equally important with legislators, whether it's a state level and what you all do with Lee for state legislators or federal legislators. And, you know, with the help of InsurePAC, your lobby team, it just gives us the ability to develop relationships with federal policymakers. Uh, it doesn't mean they're going to vote with us, nor, nor should it. But it just allows us that, you know, on those critical times when they're, uh, you know, making decisions, it just you know, kind of allows us to get their ear and, and just make the case for you. That's all it does, but it, but it really is is important for us, uh, and is a, is a key tool for us. Now, looking at Texas in particular, uh, last election cycle um, of that 2.4 million dispersed, uh, over 110 thousand dollars of that went to the Texas congressional delegation. Of course, it's a large delegation, an important delegation, and so we sent a lot of money back down to the Lone Star State. Uh, you know, last year we had about 200 Texas agents. Uh, contributed about $78,000 to the PAC. So thank you for that. Texas is always one of our top states. As a matter of fact, uh, you all were were number two in the national championship race, trailing only South Carolina. I know the race is on again for this year. 
you know, I know the solicitation just went out, so encourage you all, uh, you know, give till it hurts because, again, it really helps us as we are dealing and grappling with all these really weighty issues in D.C. that have such broad impact. Uh, it, uh, it, it's an essential tool in our toolbox. Well, it, it, it is critically important to uh, you up there and to us down here to develop those relationships. And, you know, you mentioned the congressional uh, races. Texas picked up two additional congressional seats in the, the uh, last census. And uh, essentially, uh, assuming that the, the maps hold where they are and they'll go through the courts, I'm sure. And, and uh, there's already challenges there, but it looks looks to me like we could probably fairly confidently say that there'll probably be one additional R seat and one additional D seat. One of the new congressional districts here in the Austin area, this is such a blue area that, that it would be hard to, uh, to win that, but the one down in the Houston area and all, I think uh, from what I'm hearing, there's some good candidates that are, are already uh, coming forward and all. So uh, it's one of those deals. And speaking of that, uh, you know, one of my uh, my favorite things about my job is getting to come up there and, and see you guys in Washington at our, our uh, annual national legislative conference. And uh, are, are we going to be able to come back to D.C. this uh, this next spring and see you all? Well, thank you for that question as well, Lee. And uh, fingers are crossed, right? But the plan is, yes, we will uh, We will have an in-person legislative conference. You know, and, and, and while the past two years, for good reason, right, we did the events virtually and they were uh, very successful. So thank you to all of you who tuned in uh, virtually. Uh, no, the plan is uh, it's going to be an in-person ledge conference. I can tell you we're back to uh, you know, lobbying in person here in D.C., uh, a little slower on the Democrat side than the Republican side. But uh, you know, the, the Republican offices and I think many Democrat offices by the spring of next year are going to be taking those in-person meetings. So we are uh, full steam ahead with the in-person events. So I'm going to give you those dates. Uh, mark it on your calendar, April 27th through April 29th. Uh, those will be the dates. Look forward to welcoming you all back, seeing some friendly faces uh, in person. And there's no substitute right, for the face-to-face uh, -face lobbying. Um, you know, I think we're all getting a little, a little tired of the virtual events, although this is greatly. I don't mind doing this virtually, <laughs> but uh, I couldn't be in Texas with you all. Probably better to do this virtually. And it's always going to be a part, right? We all know how business has changed. Uh, it'll always be a part of what we do now going forward. But that face-to-face -face lobbying, there really is no substitute. So uh, when our agents come to town, uh, you know, no one makes a, a better lobbyist than our folks. And we feel like we do a good job for you all. But you can make the case so much better with your personal stories and examples. And so, uh, yes, sir, we're, we're in person and looking forward to it. Well, we look forward to, to being up there with you and all. And Charles, uh, thank you so much for taking the time today and, and being with us. And, and uh, I hope you can stay on for a little bit. We've got a few minutes left. And I thought what I would do is kind of run through some of the key issues that we uh, dealt with in the legislative uh, session down here in Texas. Uh, you know, it was a very strange, strange session, starting off with uh, the COVID uh, uh, protocols in place. We didn't actually, the, the session began the second week in January, and our team, our government affairs team, did not get into the Capitol until March. Uh, it was basically shut down. 
Then we went through the tent city, as we call it, where you had to self-test and, and wait 15 minutes to, to see if you uh, got in. So it was uh, the, the session began very strange. And then it was followed up by uh, the winter storm Uri, which basically shut the state of Texas down. And we were on the verge of losing our electric grid and, and all the nightmares that came with that. And, you know, I've, I've told people as we've, we've uh, done these presentations around the state, state, it really changed the entire emphasis and flavor of the, uh, of the session this time because it was such a critical issue that things changed immediately to, to correcting ERCOT and the Public Utilities Commission basically had to restructure all that because the boards either resigned or, or uh, were fired. And, and uh, so there was probably another month of, of uh, the session dedicated to finding out what happened with our electric grid and what we have to do to uh, fix that and all. And then finally, the first, uh, the, the regular session ended uh, very suddenly with a walkout by the House Democrats over the election bill. And uh, so it was just a strange bill, uh, a strange session uh, in, in total. But fortunately, we were able to get three or four major uh, uh, accomplishments done. First and foremost, House Bill 19, which was our trucking litigation bill. Any of our members that, that uh, have commercial uh, operations or commercial uh, clients that had trucking uh, uh, knew how difficult it was getting because of some of these nuclear verdicts that uh, were coming out on, on, in some cases, minor, minor claims uh, and accidents with uh, uh, tractor trailer rigs. They would be million and multi-million dollar uh, trials. What we were able to do, it's not a perfect bill. We work very closely with the Texans for Lawsuit Abuse, who has been a partner of ours on, on so many of the tort reform things. But we basically put in place a new bifurcated trial. And that's a new term for me. But essentially, first, the, the plaintiff has to prove liability before they can then go to the awards stage uh, and, and the second part of, of the trial. And not being an attorney, it was all new to me. But the uh, reality is uh, we it's it's a wait and see situation. Now we've got this in place. We'll just have to see how it uh, does in helping uh, lessen these nuclear verdicts and uh, restoring the uh, the ability for us to do our job and provide the limits and, and the coverage at an affordable price. So. Big, big bill, and, and hopefully it's going to change some things. Second bill, Senate Bill 6 was the pandemic liability protection bill. You know, medical providers and manufacturers and businesses, uh, when this pandemic came about, all of a sudden it was one of those deals that they were in, in uncharted waters. Uh, medical providers seeing people that were deathly ill and, and exposing themselves and others to the uh, the COVID uh, virus and manufacturers, many folks jumped in. I know in Austin, we have a lot of distilleries around here and uh, they basically shut down their distilling operations and began making uh, sanitizing uh, deal. Well, that brings in a whole new products liability exposure and, and uh, businesses that stayed open and uh, restaurants come to mind. You know, they were severely hit by this. 
what this pandemic protection uh, liability does is if you followed protocols of either the CDC on a federal basis or the state, the governor had put out uh, a lot of mandates in counties and cities, if a business can prove that they followed those uh, guidelines, then they have uh, protection from liability claims that are, uh, you know, alleging that you caught, you know, COVID virus at your place of business or because there was a faulty product or whatever. We felt like not that, that there was going to be that many claims that would go through the courts to be paid, but merely the defense cost on that. If that had taken place, then uh, it would have been a huge, huge burden on uh, the defenses uh, of this. So we're very pleased that, that we got that done. Another very uh, important uh, piece of legislation that the insurance companies brought to us, AIPCI, which is the uh, property casualty companies, um, Senate Bill 1367, a commercial lines modernization bill. And there's 17 lines of business, which are, are like cyber liability, uh, uh, kidnapping ransom, uh, fidelity coverage, et cetera, that the companies it previously had to send their forms and rates in for approval with the Department of Insurance. Well, that was a timely uh, process, and in some cases, it could take a year to get those products to the marketplace. Well, those 17 lines of business now do not have to get prior approval, so it will speed the, the products to the marketplace. So we feel like that we will start seeing a lot more uh, availability of these uh, as the as the bill goes into effect and, and we're moving forward and all. Uh, another bill, uh, House Bill 4030, is a TDI licensing bill. And uh, it basically had um, a number of different parts to it, a cleanup for inconsistencies within the licensing uh, act. Um, Things like non-resident uh, license in Texas, if, if that non-resident lost their home state license and uh, for, for disciplinary actions or whatever and all, Texas did not have within its statute the ability to, to cancel the non-resident uh, license. So now we've added that. Um, there, uh, we've added an additional hour of ethics requirement and uh, that on the surface, you know, some agents said, well, we've got to take another hour. Well, if you have multi-state licenses, most states, other states had a requirement of three hours anyway. We only had two. So this will get us up to par on uh, a lot of the other states uh, where they are on that. Um, eliminates, this was an important one that, that uh, we were concerned with, but uh, it hasn't panned out to be a big problem. It eliminates the sub-agent class of licensing uh, when an agency would have to report to TDI any and all licensed agents as sub-agents. What we've done is, is modernized to what 47 other states were already doing is now every licensed agent in your shop will have to be a direct appointment of that company. And obviously, our concern in the matter was, are we going to have agents that have 300 licensed people in their shop and they represent 500 uh, different companies? Are we going to spend the next year filling out applications for insurance companies? Fortunately, 
We've had very few uh, problems with it, and uh, that is because TDI helped uh, advise and inform us that agents or companies can go to uh, the NIPR, the National Insurance uh, uh, or in uh, licensing uh, producer, producer registry. Yep. Producer registry. Thank you, Charles. Uh, and get that information, or they can go to CIRCON, which is the uh, continuing education uh, uh, repository for that. And that has caught, pro posed uh, very few problems that, that we were concerned with and all. So from that standpoint, it cleaned up a lot of things for the TDI on the licensing side and, and uh, were, uh, were very happy to be able to help with that. But all in all, during the uh, session, there was not anything that was of huge uh, concern to uh, IIET, and we were able to help get some of these important things passed. As it relates to TWIA for our coastal agents, there were only a couple of major TWIA changes, and that has to do with the, uh, the ability for the board to pass uh, rate increases. There's a lot uh, stricter requirements on that now. And uh, so other than that, there wasn't any any great big change. But uh, all in all, we had a, a very good session and, and appreciate the support of our members. As Charles mentioned, you know, being able to support uh, uh, business minded candidates in in their reelection and all helps us develop those relationships and, and keep uh, protecting agents and all. So. We're running uh, right on time, and I just wanted to thank everybody for joining us today. And again, Charles, thank you so much for taking the time being with us. But more importantly, thank you for all that you do on behalf of agents. And uh, your team up there is very responsive. They're great folks and, and work uh, tirelessly on our behalf, and we appreciate that. As a, a final note, uh, Joe Vincent uh, is our annual conference coming up uh, January 30th through February 1st, and uh, you won't want to miss this one. Uh, we've got a, a great lineup of speakers and, and uh, time to, uh, to be together as agents and all. Registration is now open on the website, so uh, please go to uh, the website and, and get registered. And finally, if you have any questions of Charles or myself, then uh, send us a uh, email or send it to me and I will pass it along to Charles and we'll make sure and get uh, any and all of your questions answered. But uh, thank you and appreciate your time today.